This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club, the world's first photo book of the month club. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected photographers and publishers in the industry to send handpicked books to your door. The club offers free shipping to the US, Canada, and the UK. Use code MAGICHOUR at checkout when you join the club, and Charcoal will send you a free signed copy of the highly acclaimed book Night Procession by Stephen Gill. Charcoal Book Club is the best way to keep your library stocked and up to date with the most essential in contemporary photography. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com and use the code MAGICHOUR for the special offer. I remember seeing this thing that just like gutted me. It's a look at a piece of trash and a piece of street furniture. <laughs> and yet the emotional implications, the narrative implications just seem so huge to me. I'm Jordan Weitzman and you're listening to Magic Hour. My first impression of Gus Powell felt like it was out of a Jacques Tati film or something. He picked me up at a coffee shop near his studio, and as he pulled up to the curb in his old Volvo 240 wagon, he threw the car into reverse and backed up about 20 feet full speed, stopping about 8 inches from the car behind him. There was a sense of humor in the maneuver, and a control that I thought could only come from knowing a machine so well. With a playful elegance, he got out of the car, yellow scarf and Leica dangling from his neck, and introduced himself. Gus Powell is the author of two monographs, The Company of Strangers and The Lonely Ones. He's primarily worked on the streets of New York, but says that he makes pictures with whatever is in front of him all the time. We conducted this interview at his studio, a spacious loft in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. In it, a big print of his called The Juggler, flat file cabinets, a black and white photograph of William Steig, and a green hand-painted sign with the name of his studio, Sunny 16. One wall in the studio is covered in corkboard, with little prints tacked on from his most recent project, Family Car Trouble. Below that wall, about 12 pairs of dirty white bucks, neatly arranged next to each other in a row. I was curious to know how he worked them in. When they come, they're glowing bright white, like apocalyptic white. So usually the first thing I do is I wear them out on a rainy day. Just go right into the rain with them and... Uh, and there is kind of, it's like buying a new baseball glove. You know, you kind of do spend uh, a couple of rainy days and then you put it to the side and mm-hmm. break them in on uh, in the off season. But, yeah. You know, I have, I have like my really dirty ones that are for the off season and then I have some, some, some cleaner ones also that are for mm. uh, weddings and uh, more <laughs> important uh, diplomatic events. How many pairs do you have? You know, for some reason, I, you know, it's a little weird. It's like I just started keeping them and throwing them in a box in the basement. So I, I almost wish I put the dates on them, but I kind of, you know, it, it relates to photography in some ways, in the sense that I think about the bipedal experience, um, the act of going out and walking and taking those pictures. So there's two things that I've kept. I've kept all these old shoes, and I also have all of my old glasses, like hmm. the, the lenses. And both of them being these things that somehow went out and were a part of that hunting, gathering, walking, uh, seeing, and then I just, you know, the multiples, I, they amuse me, too, just seeing this kind of lineup of, uh, of old shoes. And there's, there's some more in my basement at home, too. Um, did that kind of, did that start as a kid? I've always collected things. I mean, I've said this, before I was a photographer, I was a collector. You right. know? So, like, when I was growing up in New York, I had a, a three-drawer dresser, you know, and the top drawer was uh, clothes. The middle drawer was all hats. And then the bottom drawer was all crap I found on the street. Mm-hmm. And I had a specific obsessions with uh, things that were flattened, you know, squashed gloves that were like stuck in a gesture, you know, forever, a bent key, you know, crushed cans, hubcaps, you know, squashed that looked like hats. And I kept putting all this stuff in my drawers. And uh, at a certain, my parents were very uh, accommodating <laughs> to this. But at a certain point, my mom said this thing to me. She goes, this is great. It's great that you collect things. But the next step is to become a curator. Mm. Editing. <laughs> Editing. Yeah. So if you no longer need to have 27 flattened gloves. Let's pick the three best ones or the one best one, and you can keep that in the collection until you find something better to acquire. And, but I think that idea of going out, collecting things, bringing them back, and that was a part of how I navigated the city and part of how I, uh, I wanted to go out, have some kind of experience, and come back with some kind of thing. And eventually, that photography replacing this act of, of schlepping hmm. 
dirty, disgusting things and putting them in my dresser. (laughs) (laughs) But using the camera to to say, I saw this or to collect this, or you could take a picture of the glove, literally like almost all those things that you almost do in photo one or whatever, you know, there's the picture of the cat and then the sink and then the piece of garbage and the puddle and the whatever, but using the camera and photography to go out, collect and bring back. Yeah. Do you still respond to the same things that like, if you see that crush can or that glove, are those still cues for the potentials of an interesting picture at all? No, not or really, not, not no. really. But but um, but they still make me pause. And sometimes I might make those pictures. I'm a big believer in sketching. Mm-hmm. You know that you have to sort of keep the muscles flexed. And sometimes when you're going out and you're trying to be stimulated by the smallest of things, you have to allow yourself to make some really silly, stupid pictures along the way. And even just record things, just to flex the muscle, taking the free throws before the game begins. Um, allowing yourself to meet things right as they happen and right as you see and feel things and to not be too judgmental. So sometimes I'll still take those pictures. I just don't do anything with them, Mm -hmm. you know, the way uh, they come in and then they just stay there. But it's almost more part of what I'm doing when I'm outside. So, Yeah. You started collecting. What are your first forays into photography? Well, it was uh, the Polaroid, you know, that SX-70 Polaroid camera that was around the house and uh, again the way my mother was generous in letting me to collect all this stuff into my dressers that I brought home from the street my father was was great about handing me you know one of those collapsible uh, Polaroid film cameras and just taking all those pictures around the house you know and uh, even as an only child learning how to navigate being amidst adults you know and and taking on that role of of, uh, being seen but not heard too much or if, if you're going to be heard, make sure that it's it's a one-liner or something that's going to charm everybody, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then exiting. But but being present with the camera, so I have you know I have these boxes of all these Polaroids from you know about four and a half feet <laughs> up uh, from my parents' dinner parties and uh, whatever was happening around the house, and then even going out into New York too, into the street a bit. So that that um, the Polaroid was the beginning of it, and that pleasure too of sort of making the picture, the sound of it seeing the picture, it being there, and again, an object, right? You know, mm. But one of the things that I love about Polaroids and also slide film is that those things were actually at those places. You know, it's like literally a relic of the light, you know, a, a piece of slide film, the light came into the camera, transformed that little thing, then some chemistry went to it, and now it's here, and it, it, it traps a little piece of that light. But also, it was there on 34th Street and 5th that day. Right. And, uh, the Polaroid, too. Often, when you look at a bunch of Polaroids, you see other Polaroids, in them, you know, sticking in somebody's pocket, right. in a hand. Um, so that object kind of quality to it, I think, um, that might have even been a, a direct link in some ways. But, you know, my father was a filmmaker, too, so there were always cameras around, and that kind of, uh, you know, using things, taking pictures, having a, a you know, a, a visual tradition. My mother was a fashion designer, too, so that relationship to materials and transforming them into other things. So you grew up in a pretty cultural household. I, yeah, I mean, incredibly lucky and uh, privileged, uh, both in, in kind of in every sense of the word, and then also even being an only child, too, you know, being given uh, a lot of validation, both by my, my parents and others around me who were also creatives, too. I mean, there were a whole mm-hmm. number. Some people, I think, are lucky if they have that one aunt or uncle who kind of nourishes them. I feel like I had a half dozen people like that. That's amazing. I'm always curious about that because it could really go either way. Some people that grew up with a lot of culture in their upbringing, they've been saturated with it. They, they don't develop that curiosity, whereas the inverse could work as well. But it, that wasn't the case for you. you. There was a lot there and it continued to, to stimulate you. Yeah, absolutely. It continues to me. And also just the way I, it, it, the way I related to the outside world. You know, I thought the Metropolitan Museum w- was my, my weekend home. Uh-huh. You know, and I would go there and my mother and I would go there and we would part ways and we'd meet up two hours later and I would just go everywhere. I'd go to Egypt and I'd go to China and I'd go to the armor. And she was often going to the costume to collection to look at that fashion stuff. And then we would rendezvous back at, you know, the cafeteria and talk about what we saw and then peel off again, you know, and, and that uh, and then there was a moment like we, we really spent a lot of time at those places. And then there was a moment when I started sort of using the city as an institution as mm-hmm. well, you know, to go out and to collect things. You know, um, and I do think my mother's sensibilities of, of looking at the world to uh, find inspiration was really big to me. There's, a, you know, there's another part that I think about of these early walks in the city and with her and the act of pointing. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it's kind of interesting that literally that, ping, that finger that we point with is kind of the one that, that takes care of most photographs as well. Mm-hmm. And that to point is almost to make a picture. It's to sort of, sort of point at something to validate, look at that, look at that, look at that, don't look at that. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and I remember doing that, you know, walking around the city with uh, my mother or even anyone and just pointing at things. That's interesting. What about that? Look at that reflection. Look in this window. And then to take an extension of that and keep going and then to stick a camera in your hand and, and, and do it in a similar way. You know? mm. um, but then, of course, it's, you know, it's the four corners that uh, become a very powerful part of that equation. Too. Right. What kind of clothes did your mom design? It was women's wear. You know, she did, you know, it was women's wear. Um, she made stuff for um, Bloomingdale's and Saks Fifth Avenue and all those types of places. And, and uh, she made some clothes for, for Jackie O and other folks like that from that kind of moment in time. Somewhere around, I've got a pair of uh, sunglasses that Jackie O left. No uh, way. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and then when I was a photo editor, I actually had, I was kept trying to find a picture of her in these same sunglasses. But of course, she had like 300 of these huh. giant sunglasses. But you look at them, you know, like, oh, yeah, those are definitely Jackie O's glasses. They were yeah. classic Jackie O's sunglasses. Oh, yeah, like the big things from like, you know, 1979 <laughs> that, that uh, <laughs> she left at um, my mom's, uh, you know, uh, studio. And my mom used to wear them, too. But yeah. <laughs> Wow. So she was pretty, I mean, that's pretty impressive. She made clothes for Jackie O. And I'm, I'm just curious, what kind of filmmaker was your dad? My father came up in the cinema verite kind of tradition. So he worked with Penny Baker and the Maisel's brothers. And, uh, really? He was the kid, uh, you know, he dropped out of college and was uh, able to get introduced to that world through his older sister who was editing for, uh, at Filmmakers Inc., which was that kind of collective of, of that group of really interesting verite filmmakers. And my dad came in and started by sweeping the floors and all that and kept going and... Uh, was a cameraman, but you know, he, Cinema Verite didn't suit him entirely because he liked to talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> he always wanted to ask a question and, and participate in that give and take. Um, and, but he, you know, he stayed in that filmmaking world for a long time and, and uh, was in the union and did some feature stuff and then, and, then, uh, and then actually migrated towards politics and did political campaigns for a long time, in some ways applying some of the cinema verite tactics and documentary tactics and strategies to political campaign commercials to sort of bring in some credibility in quotes to uh, that type of work. Interesting. Interesting. But, but really, you know, from him, it is, I got an appreciation of uh, hearing other people's stories, you know, and listening and looking, but also uh, the back and forth too. He, uh, you know, I learned different things from both of them. Again, I feel very lucky that these two people were my parents it's so interesting and, and and i guess you also got to see what the you know the lives of 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 artists firsthand yeah, for sure i mean they you know because of that because of being in new york you know uh well first of all this relationship to museums meant that like i used to know them in order you know all the, the pictures that were on the wall at the museum of modern art you mm-hmm. know like the Al- the avadon portrait next to the eisenstadt next to the, you know so i knew that that set of pictures, and then um, is and that it, is that how it used to be? It was uh, it was like a permanent. Yeah, there was a very installed. established yeah. permanent collection for a long run that I knew really well, and and again, that was another one of these places that I was very. I used these places. I would go in to the modern. I mean, it was a very sh- moment for me when I shifted from no longer going to the Met. Now I'm going to go to the Museum of Modern Art. <laughs> yeah. um, and I would go in, and I would just go pet you know Picasso's goat in the courtyard, and watch 15 minutes of a movie and then and get out of there, you know, which was great. Um, but also we had family friends too. We were friendly with Bruce Davidson. I mean, the first real photo show I ever saw was the subway show. And I, I have a copy of the book that he signed to me, you know, when it, when that first show happened. So seeing those pictures at that moment when New York looked like that and I was living that, um, was extremely, you know, memorable, you know, and just knowing that that's something that, you know, this is something that people do. There are people called photographers who, wear cameras around their necks or shoulders all the time and, yeah. and are engaged with public space and the world around them and uh, try to transmit part of that experience. Those, so, th- those Bruce Davidson pictures made sense to you at the time? I don't know if they made sense to me, but it, it's like uh, I just felt lucky to know that that's, there are photographers, there are artists, there are graphic designers, there are yeah. fashion, all these things. I mean, again, it's a complete privilege as opposed to having to learn about that that is a way to do it. Like it just, it's a lot of things that I was able to take for granted 
uh, and that could endlessly validate one's own uh, artistic aspirations, you know, to right. say that, you know, having these, this way of relating to the world and trying, but really trying to transmit it, you know, trying to communicate with it, trying to put it forward, not just doing stuff into your journal, but, you know, relating to the outside world and trying to make things that you would share back to the world. The act of, of trying to communicate is the part of the practice that I think is most important and interesting. Making the pictures is, uh, is what I do. Sequencing them and trying to sort of have them uh, become a new thing is the next part of the path. But ultimately, like, I think it has to, you, there has to be some effort to communicate. Even if you're communicating questions, it doesn't mean that you're communicating facts or answers or anything. Like that. But, but registering that you're trying to put something together that you want to broadcast it outside of yourself mm-hmm. and to see what comes back. You know, I think that is important. Um, audience, having some notion of audience, whatever that is, and even if it shifts at different times, is really important. That notion of communication, I think that every, you know, you hear all different types of photographers or visual artists that have different relationships to that. Like Elliot Erwitt, for example, has said that, you know, he wants a picture to be uh, immediately obvious. You You should get it right away. Whereas someone like your friend Jason Fulford you know, he's looking for a completely open-ended quality. Well, you can be clear about ambiguity. If ambiguity is your endeavor, yeah. and to make people wrestle with that, communicate ambiguity. Don't just be ambiguous, because they're very different things. Hmm. Um, I mean, that's a, a spot where, you know, I'm, I'm very good friends with Jason, and, uh, and I think he and I, we talk about ambiguity a lot, you know, about, you know, when things are too on the nose and how you negotiate ambiguity, but still having a pleasure factor, but still keeping your audience engaged, all these kinds of things. And, and there's so many different strategies to do that. Um, and I think re- recently in this present moment with so much image making going on and so much of it being countered, you know, on the thing that's in your pocket at, you know, three inches by three inches, it's, it's not a space that allows for a lot of ambiguity. Mm. You're referring to social media outlets, yeah, like Instagram, Instagram all of that stuff, and it just you know that we really do. We are looking at a lot of material in that little compressed space, and the rules of that space has changed. I feel like in the beginning it was very monotheistic, you know, like singular pictures, and you know now I'm seeing more complicated things that are happening. But there's still kind of these tiny little things, and yeah. and the lesson is, you know, what do I do with my thumb after looking at this? Right. You don't get to have a dialogue with the work, you know, and then it's funny. Then I actually kind of feel like there's a little bit of a moment that's happening where there's a lot certain sets of quote unquote serious work that's almost too deadpan right? and too dense because it, it kind of it, it swings the pendulum all the way in the other direction of being, you know, impermeable almost, you know, and uh, cold and, you know. And I, I mean, I, and I, one thing that I'm thinking about recently is how to find that middle ground somewhere between the two again. You know, again, you, you want, you know, especially with the pictures I make on the street, I want them to have quite a bit of ambiguity, you know, and I want, you know, what is the inciting incident? Why, why am I being told to look at this? But, and hopefully there's something compelling that keeps you there and you have to negotiate your relationship with what you're looking at. Um, but I also, you know, uh, there's a there's a pleasure factor to to the way we relate to images on social media that I think is great too. Yeah, I mean joy and laughter and humor, all of that's very important, especially and having it right next to misery and pain and and uh, confusion. It's really interesting hearing you talk about kind of where you where you fit on that spectrum of communication when you look at your street work. Oftentimes, I mean, in many, many pictures, you're really wondering about the relationships between people. You know, does someone know the other person? Don't they? I mean, there's always... The, the, ma- the matchmaking. The matchmaking. That's, that's what you refer to it as? The matchmaking? No, I never have before, but just the way you're describing it, because, uh, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, one pleasure I have is when people describe a picture of mine to me, and I have no idea what picture they're talking about, <laughs> which to me, again, says it really has subverted a, a clear inciting incident. You know, there, I have pictures that it's, obvious, you know, the person fell down, there's a kiss, there's, you know, the flower behind, whatever it is, there's something that you can really grab up. But then I have a lot of pictures that are just a group of people either walking towards me or away from me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and again, this is my joy with the camera is, is uh, assembling two, three, four, six, eight, twelve people into a relationship, you know, and, and uh, a lot of the times, or recently I've been thinking more and more about just the plasma of human experience, that I think that's actually 
to a large extent what I'm interested in, in terms of taking pictures out in public space and also just life in general. What is the shared uh, cohesive tissue? What is the plasma that we're all kind of sliding through? And, and sometimes when I'm making these pictures that are eight people who have no relationship together, I'm even literally looking at the negative space rather than looking at protagonist, 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 but just what's the shape of everything that's between them? How is that charged? Um, and the you know and, and and it really is you you work by association. There often is some inciting incident that I like, whether it's light on the on a wall or one person who's doing something that you know you can kind of push to the side, and wherever you put it in the frame, it will be discovered the same way you discovered it when you walked by it. And then trying to work in an additive way. Let's see how much more we can add to the picture to sort of both uh, hide that first thing that that jumped out at you, so that hopefully your viewer, when they see the image, can discover it the same way you did, but also find something that gets you just as excited as that first thing. At your best, when you're out photographing, what do you feel like? There's a weightlessness, for sure. You know, there's... uh, And there's a real... uh, When it's really happening, there's just there's just real joy. I mean, it's like it feels like everything that's happening <laughs> is uh, for me, <laughs> um, and that and that doesn't mean that I I think everything else doesn't have its own uh, existence. But the the seeing the the you know I feel like you know and a lot of times the days that feel the best are the days when the pictures aren't even any good. You know, it's not necessarily the the good the good vibrations and the results. You know, doesn't mean uh, that it all adds up together. But, but, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely an optimist. There's real joy. There's pleasure. There's, uh, lightness. Um, I'm smiling. I mean, literally often a part of my, uh, you know, I'm often smiling while I'm taking pictures, which is good because sometimes people just think I'm a clueless tourist of some kind. Like, what are you positive six foot five guy smiling at me with this little camera on his face? Um, and it's very affirmative. You know, I, I do think it's this validation of the world. You know, one thing that, you know, Joel Marowitz was a huge mentor and uh, influence to me. And there's many things I learned from him. But the, the, the shortest, sweetest, tightest, most succinct mantra uh, that I got from Joel was this idea that every time you're taking a picture, you're validating what you're seeing. You're saying yes to what's there. And... I don't think everybody thinks that way, but that, you know, that resonated with me instantly. It was like going back to that idea of pointing at something that you think is remarkable and interesting. Other people point to say, that's wrong, that's awful, uh, that's uh, whatever, you know, there's many reasons to point, but for me, that, that act of pointing has always been one of joy and pleasure, and, and it could be the smallest little thing, you know. Um, but that idea of saying yes to the world. I mean, literally seeing that and, and, and to look at it, to bear witness to it and to, to meet it right at the simultaneous moment that it's happening as opposed to chasing something, you know, and then, and then getting into the whole thing of you make these pictures and it doesn't, this doesn't look anything like this isn't really what happened there. <laughs> you know, those, this half dozen people that, uh, I put in the frame and the way the picture exists, that's not, uh, reflective of the relationship that was actually there, but it's this new fact, you know, um, and that's exciting too, you know, to, to, to feel like you're making things that other people don't necessarily see, you know, mm. and the power of those four corners. I think about the four corners a lot, that those are your, you, you have to own those four corners. You know, you move a quarter inch to the left, to the right, it changes, you know, what you include, what you don't exclude. Um, you're responsible for it all. Yeah, you are. Yeah. You're, you're on the hook for it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You first started making your street pictures while you were working at the New Yorker, right? Correct. You, yeah. you started to go out during lunch. And well, even earlier I was making those pictures. I didn't know what they were, but I was... Before. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm curious about your experience at the New Yorker. What was the job and how did you get it? It was, uh, I worked in the photo department and uh, I was a photo researcher, photo editor, and the, the main uh, or most interesting you know, as 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 our as we move farther away from our past, we consolidate what uh, we think it is, right? Much like photographs, we'll keep this one and get rid of the rest. Um, the the part of the my job there that was the best and uh, and also really suited to me was trying to find images to go with the fiction pieces there, and just the way my mind kind of worked, associatively and through images, I was I was I think well suited to sort of read a fiction piece and think about what are you know, what pictures could we use for this? What kind of fine art could we use? Even scientific stories as well, when we would try and use something that came from a fine art tradition rather than a scientific tradition. Um, and it was amazing. It was like, uh, it, I consider my time essentially my graduate school experience because mm-hmm. I didn't go to grad school, but I, I worked there on and off for about three and a half, four years. So would you commission pictures or you'd, you'd delve into the archive? I was just finding existing things, but I got to call everybody, you know. I could mm-hmm. call, you know... Lee Friedlander, and he'd call back, and Larry <laughs> Frank, and he'd call back, or you know, Dwayne Michaels, and he'd call back, and I could talk, and I could call all these galleries, and I would write these, you know, image requests, you know, like uh-huh. where I would, you know, really think about the history of photography and or pictures that existed, and then I would reach out to other, you know, contemporaries. Do you know what I mean like uh, Tim Davis and Justin Kurland and all these, you know, like looking at the work that was being made right then. Also, this is before everything was totally digital, so portfolios were still coming in. So people would bring in work, and you would kind of, anything that you thought might work for a fiction piece later, you would sort of grab onto. You'd hold on to. Well, you'd Xerox it. You'd you know, color yeah. Xeroxes. You know, I had all these uh, folders with all this sorts of stuff in it, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, so I was doing all that work, which, I mean, it was great. And Elizabeth Biondi was a, a great teacher to me as well and uh, very encouraging and accommodating both of uh, the work I did there but also of giving me room to leave and you know so I had this kind of permalance model where I would work for a chunk of time and then I would split for a few months and do something else and then come back and it was amidst that that I met uh, Joel Marowitz who uh, I knew of him as the guy who you know the Cape Cod guy yeah base guy because I grew up going to Cape Cod too and so that that was the work of his that I knew that and St. Louis and the Arch I didn't know the street work at all. He's really made it a point of shifting stylistically over his career. I mean, going from, you know, the the early black and white street work, moving on to color, and then moving on to his next generation of color street work, and then Cape Light, and Italy. I mean, there are lots of, uh, there's a real genesis. Is that that something that you think about um, in your own work? Is that something that's important to you? Or is it more honing a particular thing that you really love? So I think it's twofold. Um, we're at this particular moment that I register. I see it very much with my students, too, and, and just across the board of uh, people making work that, that uh, it uses eight different <laughs> practices. You know, it'll have a sculptural element, a photo element, this and that. And sometimes it's like, it feels like it's one thing to be able to just say those three or four phrases in four different languages. You know, where's the bathroom? Where's the bar? Give me a cup of coffee. Which way to the beach? Help. Uh-huh. <laughs> but if you don't know how to speak the full language of one of them, do you know what I mean? Then you don't even... So being completely uh, able to communicate in one language is very important to me. You know, so having this sort of baseline practice as a street photographer, as someone who walks around with a small camera in my hand... Um, and tries to come back with something with that and is you know, and often sort of is charged by just even the responsibility of having that on my shoulder that I might use it, you know. And also just knowing that tradition and trying to make those pictures. That practice is very important to me as sort of a baseline. And then as I'm moving forward, I do think that development is, is super, super important. Also just because I think the uh, what street photography is is you know, the definition of that's been changing a lot recently, you know, in, in some ways expanding and contracting. More people are using it, the phrase ever than before and, and practicing a version of it. Um, and none of that's particularly that interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Street photography. Well, like as it's being defined, it, fe- it seems like a fairly reductive uh, term. It doesn't mm-hmm. really do much for me. Um, having ambitions of what to do with pictures that are made in a street photography tradition, that's interesting to me. You know, and and, uh, the same way, you know, 
that first book was the book of a young man, you know, the company of strangers. It was me walking around trying to feel anything I could, you know, on my lunch hours, on the way to work. And it forced me to turn up my sensitivity because some days nothing happened, you know. And so how do I make it? I've got 15 minutes here and I want to come back with something. So how little of an event can I validate? How little of something can I turn into a photograph that can at least hold my attention and possibly somebody else's? So there was that. You know, then I kind of shifted to this moment of, of working uh, medium format, color, more landscape-based, and then trying to figure out how, do I, how can I use these pictures to create something else, and, and then the lonely ones um, being the arrival point of that. You know, and then this next project, that I'm, there's two things that I'm working on now that I do feel is a continuation in the next phase. One is a, a family-based project. I've always just taken on what's right in front of me that's kind of with the camera, you know, and because of being a, a parent, you know, that's what's been right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I'm just trying to find a way to take the set of pictures that I made that at times is saccharine and just the intimate life, and that other times I think is, is something that can trans- transmit a larger story. And also it's a very different type of storytelling than the work I've done in the past, um, and, it, and it needs to sort of happen in the book. So I, I, I am, uh, it feels like a real growth for me because in, in one way it's hiding behind p- life of people I don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> in public space to find poetic truths that are maybe more a reflection of me than what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. And then the next phase being uh, attaching more language, putting myself on the hook a little bit more, but still working with ambiguity and uh, uh, the tension between text and image and having these two things, you know, like a chorus, like a dialogue that happens back and forth. Do you think your, your work is representational? Like just the way you described, like finding some kind of poetic truth that may be more representative of yourself than the people that you're photographing, or is it aspirational? I mean, if I have to choose between those two, I would want to say aspirational. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Maybe it's not a, uh, it's not a, 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 a binary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, I, don't get to, I don't have to just fill in one of them with a number two pencil. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's both. You know, I mean, here's the thing. It's especially with, you know, street photography and, and, and you know, these pictures are attached to time and space. Mm-hmm. You know, it is like, you know, the company of strangers is New York City in 2011, 2010, 2009. You know, it's a specific moment in history um, and the patina of those pictures looks like I feel like a lot of p- these types of pictures look really lousy like three years after you take them you know because like who would wear those shoes and they just feel dated you know but then when they go farther away they actually become it's not even necessarily that they become nostalgic but sort of what's good about them uh, hopefully survives and then also they are these facts of the way life was lived and performed at that time um, so in that sense, they are representational. But I think for me, it's, it's the aspirational part is the most interesting part, to make it be more than it was, mm-hmm. you know, to make a picture out of nothing. Like how little of something can you turn into a picture that's compelling that somehow tugs at you and you don't even know why. Right. Because otherwise it's just, you know, 3.30 on a Tuesday and it's a cat doing something. Are those you don't know why pictures the ones that hold your attention the most? They are, but they're also the ones you can miss sometimes too. You know, when you're even when you're editing, you know, that's the thing. That's why you have to live with material. I think a lot of the time, mm. I'll you know, I make a lot of mini lab prints that I just kind of live with, live with in my pocket, flutter, shuffle like cards, just to see how they talk to each other. You know? it, it's important to you to look at stuff over time to sit with it. It yeah. is. I wish it wasn't because then I would get more done. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> <laughs> things seem to take me a while. I, I go through a, a really awful. <laughs> focus group process where like I, I make something I've got, I can feel it in my gut. I feel good about it. And then I also feel it's necessary for me to focus group it like to as many possible people as I can encounter only to ultimately usually validate what my initial gut reaction was. But it's like, I feel like I have to do this due diligence in some ways to sort of like see what the committee thinks. You so know? it's a big focus group or it's a, uh, yeah, maybe it's an unfocused group is actually what it sounds like. But, but uh, you know, that I love making maquettes, book dummies, uh, and, and I love sharing, you know, those things with people and actually holding it in my hand, even being my own focus group. I find that I have to, I can't do everything on the screen. Hmm. Um, so I'm often, sometimes I'll make something, a little 16-page version of something that I'll take out the glue stick and the knife and the whole thing. And two-thirds of the way through, I I feel like I already know what's not working with it. But that act of using that other part of my brain, holding it in my hand, turning it into something that then I'm going to flip, that investment of time, and I think literally just using other parts of uh, your mind and body to, 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 to negotiate the material really is informative to me. And I also, I love it when these things get a little beat up. 
and yeah. Warren too. It's like kind of part of it and like that they travel with you. And, uh, I mean, I often will make, once something gets close, sometimes I'll make a mini version of it. That's like <laughs> easier for me to carry around it. So I can just kind of study that some more and it's very easy to be able to share it. I mean, I've kind of migrated towards making books that are smaller anyways, cause I think that appeals to me cause I think the, uh, you know, the coffee table book is, it, it takes up a lot of space and the, way, and the way you relate to it is very different. I really like the idea of people reading these books and reading the pictures as opposed to, you know, just thinking of them as a, a bunch of butterflies trapped in a display case. Mm. You kind of found a, an interesting way to kind of do that, but sort of slightly circumvent it with the gatefolds and the lonely ones. Yeah. I mean, We're, that, that was, uh, so, so just a little context. So William Steig, he, he wrote a book called The Lonely Ones, which is basically in the 40s? Yeah, 1942. Yeah. 1942. And, and the book is basically comprised of his drawings paired with, uh, with little snippets of text that he wrote. Exactly. I mean, he was a New Yorker cartoonist, yeah. too, and also a beloved uh, children's book author, you know, inventor of Shrek and, right. and, you know, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble and about 20 other, you know, really uh, significant children's books. And I didn't grow up with him as... Uh, in that capacity. Lots of people know him because they experience his books. I got to bear witness to him as a capital A artist uh, when I was at The New Yorker. One of my closest friends there who's still one of my closest friends, Andy Friedman, was uh, the assistant to the cartoon editor, and he had a stack of Stag's original drawings. It was about eight inches tall. It was just massive. And there was this one specific one that it was of a, uh, a mailbox, and then at the bottom of the mailbox was a, uh, some weeds <laughs> and then a ripped up letter just sitting like at the foot of this mailbox. And then the caption, there had been something, uh, some original caption written that was crossed out. And then the, the, the actual caption, it was a change of heart. And it's like, I remember seeing this thing. It just like gutted me. I just was like, uh, I want to make things like that. <laughs> something that's such a simple it's a look at a piece of trash and a piece of street furniture. <laughs> and yet the emotional implications, the narrative implications just seem so huge to me. Hmm. Somebody wrote that letter. Somebody made it all the way to the mailbox <laughs> and they stood there and they held it open and they looked into that hole and then they, they gave up. So that was the seed for how you started thinking about the image text combo. Well, I think I just, it made me, feel like I want to be an artist like this guy <laughs> right that some and I was you know I was lucky to be friendly with some of the other cartoonists too and it was really interesting Michael Crawford amazing New Yorker cartoonist who passed away recently uh, and I remember walking around with him and the way he related to the world was the way a photographer does or specifically even a street photographer looking for these little micro moments looking left looking right additively hearing stuff listening right yeah. to hear like a weird sound bite I mean I remember uh, being with him once and he said he liked my shirt and I said, oh yeah, that's, it's my dinner with dad shirt. <laughs> and then he, he took out his pencil, he wrote it down and goes, you just made me $500. <laughs> I still have the shirt. I don't know. What if was the shirt? What was the it shirt? It was like a blue shirt, you know, and it was, I wore it cause I was having dinner with dad. So I put on my, you know, and he's, you know, and that's the, and that idea of always being ready to grab language and image, right? Because that's, you know, this Steig thing, it's not, it's just thinking about, I mean, I don't know what, if Steig saw that mailbox with a thing or if he had the idea or what, but to be that type of artist who traffics in really uh, concise pieces of poetry that are super pregnant, you know, with uh, room for anyone to kind of jump into. And it's a really hard, I think it's one of, it's incredibly hard format to do it, you know, and, and I think that's also why it was really hard for me to finish up The Lonely Ones too, because to, to stick my neck out and put language to it and to write my own things and sort of try and do that, you know, I always felt confident in the pictures and how the pictures had a, you know, they were in a tradition and they had a visual credibility and they had been shown and seen in different ways, but one, how, what do I want to do with them? How do I turn this into something else? And to make an experience for people, like I want people to have, I want that to be, that feeling I had, you know, and that putting those two things together and imagining everything around it, you know, around that mailbox and that piece of trash. That was really exciting for me. So, and then, and then specifically this book, I mean, I have a few of them over there, the, the, the Lonely Ones book, it was just like, this was not for children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they're like these psychological drawings of, uh, you know, people who look kind of miserable. <laughs> and then the lines are, you know, mother loved me, but she died. Mm-hmm. 
who are all those others? I can confuse and amaze. You know, they're, again, very kind of open but large, sometimes funny. A lot of them really dark, you know, and that it was this kind of small little book and that it was very successful in its time. It went into like, you know, 15 printings and... I bought up a bunch of old ones. I mean, a number of the ones I have, like, you can tell they were given, my, in my mind, they were given to people's shrinks. It's like, dear Dr. Brennan, I thought you would enjoy this. Ha, 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 see page 22, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But, um, but that was the turn on for me, just that type of artist. And then, you know, I got to meet him when my friend Andy Friedman and I, we went, he, he decided to bring the drawings back in person. And Stike used to live in New York. He's a native New Yorker. And he used to live uh, by Washington Square Park. And, but he was living in Boston then. So we drove up to Boston. And uh, we returned these things. And we had this lunch with him with watermelon and wine. And it was just, it almost felt like a Stike cartoon, you know. But then I showed him some street pictures, too. I mean, I had, you know, Andy, my friend Andy, brought some of his drawings. But I had no idea what Stike would think of these pictures you know and I put them down and like he immediately looked at them he was like look at her foot look at that foot (laughs) (laughs) it's like you could tell I was like oh yeah that's life like he would think about that you know like how somebody's what is that how's that personality described by the way that that woman's putting that foot into the pavement as she rounds that corner do you know what I mean it felt yeah very successful encounter do you know what I mean it felt like again like okay like we're kind of kind of cooking from the same stuff here kindred spirits yeah yeah or at least like that's this is our relationship we're going to grab these little fragments of life in public space with our ears with our eyes with our heart with whatever we can and then we're going to take them back to our caves and try to turn them into something that uh hopefully can communicate that experience or a new experience or at least can communicate that ambition mm-hmm. that way of relating to the world i mean i think at the, the, the baseline i think that's the biggest hope for me is to say pay attention yeah the way in which you just described steig responding to that picture it's it's a kind of it's a it's an affirmation that is important for a photographer i think i mean i I don't know if you've ever felt like you know you make these pictures but you're just not really sure if people are going to get them is that something that you you felt yeah i mean of course you know i mean i'm not sure i even get them yeah um showing stuff to another artist who you respect. And I actually, for me, I find it even more valuable when they're sort of outside of, I'm, I'm outside of your medium even. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And getting validation for the, the heart of the work <laughs> is huge. You know what I mean? It's just huge. And then also I just think a lot of this work is solitary. You know, like you, you walk around, you take pictures. I mean, I walk and shoot with other people too, but you know, ultimately it's, it's me facing something and, and, uh, and trying to make sense of it. So then when you have these moments of being able to share that with others and have a community, it's, uh, it's extremely important, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I also think there's times, too, when, you know, it's the line, like, you know, most poetry is written for poets, you know. And, and I think that people have applied that to photography, at least in, ter- in terms of more rigorous photography that asks more of its viewer and it's not just a delivery system. You know, I, I have this thing where I kind of divide all photographs into either nouns or verbs. Hmm. And... For the most part, pictures are used as nouns. This is what Angelina Jolie looks like today. This is the shoe. This is the house. This is the place. Whereas the pictures that are really uh, amazing are the verbs. You know, like for me, it was like really like the Winogrand experience of taking life and turning it into this living moment that's just in these four corners that only exists in that space of that picture plane. Uh, that that ing ing like kind of quality in in a photograph. Those verbs. So that. That vibrancy uh, of of a picture is, is something that's really uh, important to me. I'm curious what you've learned from from Jason Fulford over the years um, from an editing standpoint. With Jason, I mean that the words that jump to mind are joy, mm-hmm. ambiguity, yeah, chance, mm-hmm. play, mystery, um, and. you know, how all those come into editing, into an editing process. And also, you know, about let's making something that will just, it will go have its own life. (laughs) So making something that is, uh, um, you know, how, how you edit it and sequence it so that it can have its own internal logic of some kind, 
You know, the, the object itself has to have a logic and an identity and a personality. And some of that can come from the aesthetic of the original images, the nature of design, the nature of the publisher. I mean, J&L books, I think, have a very specific aesthetic. I remember somebody at one point saying, like, oh, yeah, that's that publisher where the books like look like they're children's books. <laughs> and I was like, that's kind of a great, it's you a know. Good compliment, yeah, man. I mean, like yeah. some of the, and this isn't just as a parent, but like some of the most efficient uh, books are children's books, you know, because they deliver image and text and they hit you with little bits of dopamine and they keep you moving and they maybe... Uh, propel you forward and the design sensibilities are kind of there as well but um, yeah I think also uh, Jason and I have talked about like trying to make things that's, that we would pay five dollars for at a yard sale mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's the real mark like I, the- I, I'd pay five dollars for that or even two dollars I'd pay two dollars would you pay two dollars is it good enough would it pass the two dollar test because <laughs> sometimes that's a completely different model than like you know, would you pay $75 for it? It's edition of 200 at the New York Art Book Fair. That's a completely different model. We're talking about walking into a space, you pick something up, nothing about it, but you just encounter it. And it's like, oh yeah, I want this. Right. I don't know what this is, but I want to bring it home and yeah, that's a, learn that, from it. You that, know? that totally changes the game. There's something, when you start to think about work that way, I mean, it seems like it's a, it's a pretty liberating way to think about it. Yeah, and it's also why you need collaboration too, you know, because we all get attached to different things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, 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 yeah. And then one other thing too, the biggest thing, because it's such a part, I think, at least in my uh, perception of Jason's practice and something that I think about for myself and as a teacher, to develop a set of images and a, a way of making pictures that then becomes a language and then to use that language to communicate something, right? So it's not just about making singular great pictures. That's a great picture. Oh, that one's good. That's so-so. But what is it? It's an alphabet. It's a language. It's a vocabulary. And now use that vocabulary to communicate something. I was thinking about this specifically with like emojis recently too. You know, there was a whole thing on NPR about how, you know, uh, they had some linguistics person who, you know, was, you know, an old academic who had to look at these teenagers like communication sets where everything is being, you know, it's like it's literally all being transmitted back and forth with little images, you know. And I think that, you know, I kind of zoomed out from that just to think about, well, isn't that kind of what we try to do with our photographs to some way? Of course, we're not using the eggplant, you know, <laughs> to say something specific, but like to make a visual iconography, to make a way of seeing, of collecting, um, of uh, image making, and then at least in book format or really in any format to then take that set to communicate something, you know. And like it's, it's such a pleasure with, you know, Jason does a lot of great workshops and, and you know, when he has all of his squares out and there's, it really does feel like, uh, you know, you're the, the smartest guys in the room at NASA and you've got to figure out how to use this set of pictures to get them back from the moon. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if, if you can disassociate from your work in that way at times, it's really valuable and just associate with what you already have rather than when you made it, how you made it. But now the endeavor is to take this on and, and, uh, turn it into something new that is its own thing that will outlive you and that will just go and have its own presence do you feel like you have a really good grasp on determining what those languages are for yourself that you want to speak no (laughs) (laughs) you know it's it's ongoing you just it's ongoing you know i think i know it when when i see the way a couple of pictures rhyme with each other and way something's happening and and uh, repetition and you know uh it's in the thick of it when i feel like I, i i really know it it and also that's the pleasure factor too. The same way I said, there's a real pleasure factor when I'm making the pictures, but then there are times they're, they're harder to come by when you're editing and working with your own material and you see it with that clarity of it. It's just what's right in front of you as if you were walking up to it with a camera, but now it's just right there as opposed to remembering what you took before or after and how, ooh, that, you know, that with this and this. And the, the, again, this sort of, I've been thinking a lot about connective tissue and plasma and that that's like what the that's really what you're trying to create when you're sequencing and editing that's like what you're doing and that's what keeps the whole thing together you know otherwise it's uh it's just a bunch of pictures um but to turn it into something that that can move and that has uh uh i mean literally a physicality in the sense of a book but but even just as a a body of work i mean they call it a body of work right (laughs) you know and uh so it takes a lot of parts to make a body, <laughs> you know? Mm. So sometimes you're putting in those pictures that aren't even good, but they, they are required because that's how uh, the whole thing becomes cohesive. I mean, that's a real lesson too. I think, you know, often we make these certain pictures that we know are hard and that are uh, the ones that we're most excited to make. But sometimes there's these other ones that are on their own, not necessarily the most 
uh, compelling, but in the collection are the most important ones. So the ongoing project right now, the work that's up on the wall right behind you is your family work. What's the project called? Right now it's called Family Car Trouble. Family Car Trouble. Where does the title come from? Um, I love these, uh, you know, pieces of language that are kind of triples that kind of pivot off, you know, like, so like social butterfly collector, <laughs> uh, that kind of, it's almost, it's a car game even, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, also, you know, it's, it is that this set of pictures is this reckoning of, uh, the arrival of two small children at the same time as the departure of, uh, an, a sick parent. And then amidst all that is the family car <laughs> that's also having a hard time. Um, and in, in many ways, the family car is the is the entry point. It's I think it's probably the most accessible part of the body of work, and it's also it just can perform. You know, either either I can be the person who's driving that. Anyone can kind of re- I think relate to being in in, in car trouble, uh, and then I think also people can think about you know what a family car is, and it sort of puts these two things together, and it has a you know you know it has some bells and a little bit of humor to it, and then and then it goes into other places once you sort of move forward with it hmm. is there any is it purely image based is there uh, any text component yeah it's right it's purely image based you know but uh, in some ways it's kind of functioning like uh, the blinders on a horse you know like the design ideas you know and it's not completely done yet but that on, on one side you have this experience uh, of of negotiating you know your life as uh, a parent you know of small children you know that's coming in from one side and then on the other side you have uh you know, being a son and a, to, to your own parents and them sort of departing. And then you take those two blinders off and then there's this other life that happens in front of you, you know, and that's like the car on the road keeping going. Mm. Um, but still having to sort of relate to those two things and negotiate those two things and, uh, and life must go on. That's what happens. The car, you know, there's problem. Also, it's for me, it's also a lot of, about problems that you can solve and problems you can't solve. So how many maquettes in are you? Uh, let's just like four, I'd say. Yeah. yeah You're getting four, close. Four. Yeah. It's pretty close. I mean, there's moments when I, like it's felt close enough that I'm just going to mess it up kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, now it's just, it's that, it's that moment of reckoning of like me really, uh, letting it be what I want it to be. And it, it, a lot of it is the pendulum swing, which maybe fits in with what I was talking about with the lonely ones that very, a whole lot of that, the, the very first maquette kind of ended up in the final one right. all that time later, the scale, the, a lot of the, the, the pictures, the pictures were established for a very long time. Um, and here too, there's, there's an aspect to that very first edit that I did, which was like, you know, one day, uh, and on screen and then I had to print it I, again I had to turn it into something I mean I'll show you it's over there somewhere it's it's uh you know I just had to print it out like in black and white Xerox quality and masking tape and put it into something so I could like look at it at home that night yeah um and I had a different title and all that and there's a lot of you know aspects of that that have been retained and that also in some of the middle ones was removed but have then returned so I, I think it's pretty close well I look forward to seeing it yeah <laughs> yeah This has been really great. Thanks so much for having me here. Thank you for coming. That was my conversation with Gus Powell that we recorded in Brooklyn. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. Music in this episode by Damien Lazarus, Michelle Macklem, Poddington Bear, and The Monks. If you like what we've been doing, take a second and give us a review on iTunes. It helps others discover the show. You can also follow us on Instagram and sign up to our newsletter, where we'll show you some behind-the-scenes action from our visits with our guests. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and thanks for listening.